0: Very good to see all of you this morning. I'm glad that you've taken time out of your day to come in to worship God. And I hope that what we do this morning will be very beneficial to us as we study and also be a glory to God. Twelve years ago today, I was standing on this stage for a different purpose. Some of you were here back then when I got married, right over there. And uh, we're celebrating our 12th anniversary today. And, uh, it's a good day. It's been a good 12 years. Been up and down type of 12 years, as uh, all of our time we go through ups and downs uh, in life. As we start this morning, I want you to do something for me. I want you to look at the person next to you, or look both sides, and, and just look at the person next to you for just a minute. <laughs> Probably the person you're sitting next to is either your spouse, or your child, or a family member, or a friend, or a brother, or a sister. But I want to ask you something. I don't think there's any identical twins in the audience, but did anybody see somebody that looked exactly like yourself? Probably not, right? And some of us are very thankful for that. (laughs) But the point here at the very beginning is that we're all different, right? As we look at each other, not only do we not look alike, but I could have asked the question... Does the person next to you think exactly like you? And perhaps that might be even scarier sometimes. But the point is we're all different. We're different in a lot of different ways. We are diff we have different physical features, we have different mannerisms, we have different appearance, we have different personalities, we have different interests, we have different ways of thinking, we have different ideas about things. Every one of us has a unique experience in life, which causes us to be different in a lot of many ways. And when you get a group of people together, a group of different people together, you have to understand one thing, and that is disagreements are going to happen. Division is going to happen. There are going to be times when we don't see things exactly the same. You know, a church is made up of a lot of different people. I don't know how many people exactly that we have here. I don't know, 150 or so. But when you get a group of people together of that many people, you know that one thing is going to happen and that is there are going to be differences. We're not all going to see things exactly the same way all the time. When you have a group of 50 people, that's going to be the case. When you have a group of 10 people, that's going to be the case. And when you have a group of 2 people, that's going to be the case. That differences are going to occur. The test, is in how the group deals with division. The test of whether it's going to succeed or whether it's going to fail is how the group handles the disagreements, how the group handles the differences and the division that is bound to occur. Think about in your marriage relationship. For those of you who are married, Think about in your marriages the test on whether your marriage is going to succeed or whether it's going to fail is in how you handle those differences and those disagreements and those issues that come up where you don't see things exactly the same way and from the same perspective. For those of you who have a job, is that not also the case in companies and corporations in businesses? that the test on whether a group is going to succeed, a business is going to succeed or fail, is going to largely rest on how that group of decision-makers and how that group of employees interact and how they deal with the differences and the disagreements and the divisions that are bound to occur. The church is not any different from that. The test on whether a church will succeed or whether it will fail will be largely determined, By how the individuals in that congregation handle the disagreements and the division and the differences that are bound to occur. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to talk about dealing with division. Endeavoring to keep the unity. How do we overcome differences, disagreements, and division that is bound to occur? What we're going to do at the very beginning here is I want to read through five different passages to make this very first point. And I know this is a very simple point, but it's a point that we need to be reminded of over and over and over and over and over over again, that unity in the church is important. And what we want to do is read through these five passages here, and I ask you to turn your Bibles. I'm not going to have it up here on the screen. I want you to get your Bibles out, and I want you to turn to these passages with me. The first one here is in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, let's begin reading in verse 1, and let's read down to verse 6. I have verse 3 up there, but let's read down to verse 6. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. He says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with longsuffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. The first thing, I want to point out several different things from this verse. The first one is in verse 1, when he says, He beseeches you, he's asking them, he's requesting them, but more than that, he's pleading with them to understand the importance of what he's talking about. The second thing is down in verse 3, the phrase where he says, "...endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace." Just in that one phrase alone, what I want you to understand is that unity in a group, and specifically unity in a church, doesn't just happen. Sometimes what we'd like to believe is that we'll just get all these people together, we'll put them all in a room, and everything will just work itself out, right? That unity will just naturally happen. That's not it. What he says is it's going to take work. He says endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. When he says endeavor, that means everyone has to work together to make it a reality. The third thing I want you to notice is back in verse 2, where he tells us how we can do this. How can we take a group of people like this with all the different experiences, how can we work it all together where we're on the same page and we're united as one? He says, with all loveliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. We'll touch on some of those points here in just a little while. But he gives us some of the qualities that each and every Christian needs to have in order to maintain unity in the congregation. Lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. And then in verses 4 through 6, he defines what this unity is all about with all of the ones there. He says there is something that we need to unite on, and here are those things. The second passage I want you to turn to is back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Turn back a few pages, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, I want you to notice in verse 10. We'll just look at this one verse here, and then we'll turn over a couple more pages in 1 Corinthians. For those of you who remember the letter to the Corinthians, its first letter. There are a lot of issues in the church at Corinth when Paul writes this letter. But he starts out the letter and addresses the root problem. The root problem in the church was not that they were suing each other. The root problem was not that they had issues partaking of the Lord's Supper. The root problem is not the issue regarding spiritual gifts. It's not even the sexual immorality of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The root problem at the church of Corinth is in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Again, let's start and go through this verse. He says, I plead with you. Paul is pleading with the church at Corinth. He's begging the church at Corinth. He's saying, please, if there's anything that you want to do, do this. I plead with you. He tells us the importance of what he's talking about. The second thing is the phrase, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What that phrase tells me about unity and that there be no divisions among you is that it is by the authority of Jesus Christ that there shouldn't be any divisions in the church. There shouldn't be divisions in the church. Jesus is commanding that. So while we make this first point, unity is important. I think everybody understands that unity is important, but not just that. Unity is important and it is a command of God. And when we're divided, we are not obeying a command of God. We are disobeying. We take some commands like baptism and we emphasize it. And we understand if we're not baptized, we're disobeying God, and therefore we cannot be acceptable to Him. And we might take other different commands and we say, okay, if we don't do that, we know we're disobeying God, we're not acceptable to Him. But sometimes I think we look at something like this, unity in the church, and say, well, yeah, it's great if you have it, but we don't emphasize it to the extent of we're disobeying God if we don't have unity in the church. The third phrase I want you to focus on is as he defines the unity here. There are three different things that he defines, three different parts of the definition of unity from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. The first part is that you all speak the same thing. You've all got to speak the same thing. That is what comes out of your mouth needs to be the same. And I think we understand 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. If anyone speaks, I'll speak as the oracles of God. But we can speak the same thing if we're all focused on God's Word and we're communicating that. The second part of the definition is, and near the end of the verse, he says, be perfectly joined together in the same mind. I believe what that refers to is that we need to all have the same type of mind, same type of attitude, same type of love towards each other. That if we all are motivated by the same things, then we're more likely to be on the same page. The third part of the definition is in the same judgment. And what I believe he refers to there is that even the judgments that we make, the decisions that we make, that we should all be united. Now, think about this definition here for just a minute. You've all got to speak the same thing. You've all got to have the same mind. You've all got to have the same judgment. And you, you say, how? How can we do that? And let's go a step further when he says perfectly joined together. He doesn't, doesn't say, you know, well, for the most part, you speak the same thing. For the most part, you have the same mind. For the most part, you have the same judgment. No, he says perfectly joined together. That describes the extent to which this unity ought to be. Now the question is, how can we do that? Well, how can we get all on the same page? And we'll answer that as we go along. But I think it all refers back to being united upon God and His Word. If we're all united upon God and His Word, we can do that. We can speak the same thing. We can have the same mind. We can have the same judgment. Turn over a couple more pages to 1 Corinthians 3. I want you to notice verses 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians 3, beginning of verse 1. Paul says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it and even now you are still not able. For you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? The phrase that sticks out in my mind from those verses is at the end of verse 3, when he says, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? I preached this lesson a lot of different times, and I preached it for this reason, and that is, from my experiences in churches over my lifetime, I've seen a lot of division. And I think that a lot of you here, you also have experienced those types of things at different times. And it is sad to me that in the church, you see stubborn people button heads and not willing to budge division occurring in the church. And what Paul is saying here in this passage, he's pleading with the Corinthians and said, you know, if it's a group of spiritual people, you would expect more than that. You would think you could expect it at your job, that there's going to be some disagreements, division, and there's going to be turmoil at times. You can expect it in other types of relationships, but if there's one place that you shouldn't have to expect Division and turmoil. It's in the church. And what he says here is, when there is that, in verse 3, when there is envy, strife, and divisions among you, he says you're carnal. You're behaving like mere men. You're not spiritual when that happens. Again, this emphasizes the importance of unity. Let's turn over to Philippians chapter 2, the passage that we read just a few minutes ago. So well, Philippians chapter 2, I want you to notice, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read just the first four verses at this time. Philippians chapter 2, begin verse 1, he says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. For now, I want you to focus on the first two verses. Verse 1, he says, if, four different times. He says, if there are any of these things. And as you read through verse 1, the answer to each of those questions is, obviously yes. For each of those ifs, it's obviously yes. Is there any consolation in Christ? Certainly. Is there any comfort of love? Yes. Is there any fellowship of the Spirit? Definitely. Is there any affection and mercy? Most certainly. The answer is yes to all of those things. So he said, if the answer is yes, then the Corinthians would have said yes to all of those things. If there are all of those things, verse 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, Being of one accord, of one mind. He says, if all of those different things exist, then here's what I need you to do. Fulfill my joy. That tells me that what Paul wanted more than anything else for the Philippians, for the Corinthians, for the Ephesians, for all of these different churches is be like-minded. Be together. Another phrase when he says being of one accord, you might have a reference in your Bible that tells literally what that phrase is of one soul. What Paul is saying here is not just some pretense of unity. What he's saying is you need to be united through and through to the core of one soul. That's the type of unity that Paul is talking about. So let's turn back to John chapter 17. We've noticed four different passages where Paul is talking about unity and the need for churches to be united. But let's see for just a minute what Jesus said, as He is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, as He prays to His Father shortly before He is to be led away and to be crucified on the cross, here are some of the things that He has to say. Down in verse 20, beginning. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word, that they all may be one as You, Father, are in Me, and I in You, that they also may be one in us, That the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them. That they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me. That they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. And notice, as Jesus is praying to his Father, one thing is top of mind to him as he leaves. And that is, those who believe on him, that they may be one, that they may be united. But I want you to notice the reason that he gives in verse 21 and in verse 23. He repeats it. He says, the reason that they need to be one, the end of verse 21, that the world may believe that you sent me. And he repeats that down in verse 23. Jesus tells us that one of the reasons that we need to be united as congregations, that we need to be united in the church, is so that the world will believe that God sent Jesus. You know, I think sometimes that people in the world, when they hear a turmoil in the church, what do they do? They probably sit back and laugh at it. How can those people who profess to be God's children How how can they profess that with what's going on there? We've got to be careful of our example. So as we have begun here and looked at all of these passages, one point should overwhelm us and that God demands unity. Unity is important. Unity is a command. It's something that we've got to strive for. Now, I don't know exactly what the situation here is now, I think, by and large, from what I know, there's peace and harmony and unity in this group now. So why are we talking about it? Because we never need to forget it. We never need to forget what could happen. And what likely will happen, differences, disagreements, division will occur. Now, how do we handle it? And that leads us into the last part of our lesson. I'm going to notice two different things that can help us to overcome the natural division, disagreements, and differences that occur. The first one that I want you to focus on is that division can be overcome by love. Division can be overcome by love. Turn to First Corinthians chapter 13. We notice there in the first part of the letter that Paul focuses on the root problem. The root problem that existed in the church of Corinth was that there was division. There was envy. There was strife and there was division. And that caused a litany of other problems. Well, here as he gets to the close of this letter, he focuses on one important aspect, one important characteristic that each of them needed, and that is the quality of love. We're going to read the entire chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. He says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long in its kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but whether there are proxies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that, which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Two verses and two phrases I want you to focus on that tell the power of love. Verse 8, when he says, love never fails. Love never fails. And then at verse 13, when he says, now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. If there is anything that can help us through whatever temptation, whatever trial, Whatever obstacle is in our way, if there is anything that can help us, it's this right here. It's the quality of love. Can love help a church? Especially a church that might be going through some of the things that we were talking about, some of the division that is bound to occur. Who is Paul writing to? The church at Corinth. They were taking their brethren to court. There was open sexual immorality there in the church. There was division, envy, strife. They were divided into sects, following different men. Could love help them? Most definitely. He says love never fails. Turn back to Philippians chapter 2. This time I want to focus on the last two verses that we read. Philippians chapter 2, look at verses 3 and 4 again. Where I believe what he does here is he defines really what love is all about. In verse 3, it says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. In this passage, he emphasizes love in the first two verses. He says comfort of love in verse 2, the same love. And here he describes what love is all about. Love is about putting somebody else before yourself. Love is about looking out for somebody else before you look out for yourself. Isn't that what love is? Isn't that the love that we have in our marriages towards our spouses? It's putting somebody else in front of us, thinking about somebody else before we think about ourselves. Love is a key in achieving unity when a group of God's people, all love God and put Him first. When a group of God's people all love each other and put the needs of others before their own. When a group of God's people all share a love for souls. Can you imagine what can be accomplished when every member of a congregation loves God, loves their brethren, and loves lost souls? Can you achieve unity? Most definitely. Love can help us. Well, let's talk about exactly how love can overcome division. One of the things that love does to help us to overcome the division and disagreements that occur is it helps us to focus on the important issues of life. Do you know why division happens? Division is caused by selfishness. Division is caused by selfishness. When people are proud, stubborn, and unwilling to yield, that's when division happens. When you get two people, or more than two people, who are all stubborn and they butt heads, that's when division occurs. Love reminds us of the reason that why we gather together. Love reminds me that it's not all about me. It's about others too that love for God, my brethren, and others comes before my own personal feelings. Love reminds us by helping us focus on all those important things. Love also helps us to overcome division by reminding us to think the best of each other. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, Paul describes one attribute of love when he says love thinks no evil. I think one of the things that makes disagreements and differences into division and makes it worse is by people assuming the motivation of others. That instead of people going and talking to somebody and working out the little differences that occur, no, what they do. They assume that they know already what that other person is thinking, and then what happens? They usually go to other people and start talking about it. Sometimes we play... What I call the they syndrome. All they care about is themselves. They just want to make trouble. They just want their own way. They did that on purpose. The problem with that is we don't know a person's heart. We can know some about a man's heart by his actions, but we cannot know all that is in a man's heart. Only God knows the hearts of men. Trouble is caused by assuming to know a person's heart. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul said, Bearing with one another in love. I basically think what he means by that. We've got to have some patience. We've got to put up with each other. As brethren, we must give each other the benefit of the doubt. Love helps us to do that. Then number three, love helps us to overcome division by causing us to solve problems instead of ignoring them or running away from them. I believe you could describe unity as joint participation in peace and harmony. That is, when we come together, we're participating together, and we do it in peace and harmony. And as we looked at earlier, unity is a command. Each of us must strive to have that peace and harmony. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What he's telling us there is we need to be people who make peace. We need to love peace and be about making it. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, there's two little verses here that I think go a long way in telling us how we need to handle issues that come up in the church. Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, notice what the Apostle Paul says. He says, I am I Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clint also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, these two sisters in Christ in verse two, Euodia and Syntyche, I don't know what the issue was between these two sisters. There was something that Paul knew about. And there was something that needed to be resolved. And I want you to notice what he does and how to handle that. What should, this, what should be ha- happening in that situation to make it right, to not allow that little issue to mushroom into something much bigger? The first thing he does in verse 2 is he says, I implore you, Odia." On one side of this, he says, I implore you, I beg you, I plead with you, Odia, do something about this. But so he just doesn't leave it on her doorstep. No, he says, I implore Seneca. He says, I implore both of you to be of the same mind as the Lord. I want both of you to work this out, to get on the same page, to get back together. Too many times what happens when there's a disagreement between brothers and sisters in Christ is one's over here, one's over here, and they never speak. And neither one of them takes that step to solve the issue. What would Paul say right here? He said, you, do something about it. And he said, you, do something about it. Take care of that. But I'm not going to go to them unless they come to me first. That's the type of attitude sometimes people have, isn't it? What Paul's saying is both of you need to go. It doesn't matter who goes first. Both of you go. But not only that, the other thing that allows differences and division like that to get worse is that everybody else takes a hands-off approach. And we say, that's their problem. They've got to work that out, right? Well, what did he say in verse 3? He doesn't just implore Euodia. He just doesn't implore Syntyche. He just doesn't implore both of them. He says, I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, I don't know exactly who the true companion is. I have my guesses. I really believe he's talking to all of them at the church. He could be talking to one individual. But the point's the same regardless. Somebody needs to help these two sisters. If they're too stubborn to pick up the phone or to go knock on the door of the other one, what do you need to do? Stand by and let it happen? No, he said, you need to go. You need to help them, whoever this true companion is. It's not often easy to solve disagreements and fix division, but we need to work at it with all we've got. Why? Because we love. Because we love God, we love His church, we love the brethren, and we love lost souls. Love can help to overcome division. The second thing I want to look at that can help to overcome division that occurs is humility. Humility is another powerful tool in overcoming divisions that happens within the church. Let's turn back to Philippians chapter 2. This is basically the text for the lesson. In verses 1 and 2, we notice the type of unity that Paul commands the church to have. In verses 3 and 4, and also the first couple of verses, we notice the emphasis on love, but also we notice the emphasis on humility and how humility can help us to achieve the type of unity that Paul commands. Look down in verses 5 through 8, Philippians chapter 2. He says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bomb servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. What Paul is saying here, what type of mind do we need to have? What type of mind will allow us to have this type of unity? It's the humble mind. It's the mind which Jesus demonstrated by coming to this earth and dying upon the cross. Christ taught the principle of humility and service. In Luke chapter 9, verse 48, He taught, for he who is least among you will be great. What Jesus taught was that if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you learn how to be a servant. You learn humility. You remember the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee who went up to pray. What was Jesus' point in that? The point is that you need humility above anything else. It's the bedrock principle of Christianity. Now, how do we have unity in the local church? We have unity in the local church by having the same love and being of the same mind, having humility. Now, how can humility help us to overcome division specifically? Number one, by causing us to admit that we could be wrong. How many times in your marriages, especially husbands, I focus on husbands because it's safer for me and that I know a little bit more because I'm one. How many times in your marriages have you not wanted to admit that you were wrong? You know, I have another lesson that describes the two phrases, the two hardest phrases in the English language to say. I was wrong, and I'm sorry. We don't want to admit it. Even sometimes when we realize it, that we're wrong, we don't want to say those words that I was wrong. We all have a degree of pride. We all have our own thoughts about what's wrong or right. When a subject comes up on which we may differ, there arises some problems. Some issue comes up, there's people on this side, and there's people on this side. How do you handle that type of situation? Humility makes us realize that we could be wrong. Where division occurs is when you've got a group on this side and you've got a group on this side, and both of them say, I'm not wrong, I'm right. Humility allows us to remember that we could be wrong. We're not right all the time. It allows us to keep an open mind. In Romans chapter 12, verse 16, Apostle Paul says, Do not be wise in your own opinion. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Too often we shut out the possibility that we might be wrong. And that makes the situation much worse. How can humility help us to overcome division? Well, it helps us. To allow us to admit that we could be wrong, but also by instilling patience in a long suffering attitude. He dealt with that some this morning uh, in our adult Bible class here in the auditorium, talking about patience and long suffering. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, mentioned lowliness of mind. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, he said lowliness and gentleness, or long suffering, bearing with one another in love. The point there is that in lowliness of mind, the idea is to think low of ourselves, to esteem others better than themselves, to bear with one another in love. Humility allows us to be patient with each other. How does division become worse in a group? People are impatient. They can't see things through the eyes of the other person. They want everybody to see things exactly the way they see them right now. I'm not going to give you any time. It's right there in black and white. See it exactly as I see it. Patience. Humility allows us to be patient with each other. Humility allows us to be patient with each other by realizing that we're weak also, that we made mistakes too, that we've gone through the same things before, that we've made the same mistakes too. Humility allows us to be patient. Dealing with division. Keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Number one, unity is important. It's a command. But we know that there's going to be disagreements. We know that there's going to be differences. We know that there's going to be division in the church. So, how do we deal with it? Two main qualities love and humility. If every person in a congregation exhibited both of those qualities, how much division do you think would happen in the church? Those are things that can overcome the issues that come up. Now, in the church, those things will work. Think about your marriage. If you want your marriage to succeed, realize that unity is important. You can't just live in the same house. Unity is important. Division can be overcome by love. Division can be overcome by humility, too. It works in any group, really. That's the recipe for overcoming disagreements and division. But finally, if unity is a command, what are the consequences if we are divided? What are the consequences in the church if we're divided? If it's a command. What it means is that we're not acceptable to God. Have you ever thought about why God gave us a church? You know, God could have designed a plan where each and every person had to do things on their own. And by and large, we do have to do things on our own. I realize that. But but He didn't have to design us to gather in a group like this. He could have just given us a Bible and given us a list of things that we need to do in our lives. And if you do those things, then you're acceptable to God. But no, he, he told us what we need to do. But He says, I want you in a group. I want you to come together. Have you ever thought about why? I believe the reason why is that He wants us all to help each other on our way to reach heaven, And that's the goal. When we're divided, we're not helping. We've got to be all united on the same purpose. To love God and to live with Him forever.